Originally, this film was actually pitched by, of all people, Howard Ashman. You know, the big singer guy who unfortunately died before the previous film actually came out. In fact, there's still three songs in this film that he did for this film that did actually end up in said film. Arabian Nights, Friend Like Me, and Prince Ali. So, uh, yay, I suppose. But they weren't really sure exactly what to do with it, so they pushed it off and ended up working on some other things. But as I think I've pointed out a couple of times before, they were already in the process of working on several of their works because the studio would do prep work for one film while they were doing work and post-work for another film. Pretty standard, actually. If you pay attention, if you ever want to think about how crazy it is, think about this for a moment. There was a period of about five years in between the production of Little Mermaid and the production of Toy Story. Just to give you an idea of how rapid-fire this particular era of animated films was, just because the technology and the techniques and the expertise in the industry just started going crazy, and it became faster and faster and faster, sometimes having like three or four, I think, excuse me, two or three animated films coming out within one year. They handed this off to Ron Clements and John Musker, who were the people who did Little Mermaid, if you're remembering, and it shows because, especially watching this with analysis mode on, there's a lot of similar beats, holy crap. The original script was substantially different. There was the mother, of course. Um, there was the fact that Iago was British and very sophisticated. There was also the fact that Jafar was irritable and constantly frustrated at everything happening. Uh, that's cute. There's also the fact that... Uh, Jasmine wasn't really much of a character in the original treaties, which is funny because they then changed their mind on that one as well. And there was the fact that they were originally going to have Patrick Stewart. I swear I'm not doing this on purpose, but in what is quickly becoming a meme, once again, Patrick Stewart was going to be in another Disney animated film and ended up not being in it because of scheduling conflicts. It's the third one in a row. If I find out that he was supposed to be in whatever's next, I forget the next, I think it's Lion King. If I find out he was supposed to be in Lion King, I'm just going to lose it. <laughs> in case you're wondering, the specific role that they were trying to get him to play in this one was Jafar. Anyways, <clears throat> that would be an interesting world. Obviously, of course, I can't talk about this film without talking about Robin Williams. Now, <laughs> Whew. Um, I, okay, so the first thing I want to mention is everyone knows the bare, broad, general strokes of the problem. Robin Williams was like, yeah, I'll do it, but we have to do it a certain way. And then the studio didn't do it that way, and Robin Williams and Disney basically parted ways for years as a consequence of this until uh, Kerensky was specifically fired partially over this event, although there's other reasons too. And as a direct consequence of that, they then, uh, the new guy, who I can't even think of his name, personally reached, Roth, I want to say, personally reached out and did a big, huge public apology to Williams, which Williams then accepted and decided to go ahead and work with Disney again. It was a whole mess. There's details. There's actually a lot of details in there. I've decided after some thought not to really cover most of it, because it's not really relevant to the creation of this film. With one big exception. See, the thing is, Williams was their first pick for this. They had several other people in mind, but he was the one they wanted to play the genie. And they actually had started designing the Chidi with him in mind before they even actually reached out to him. When they reached out to him, Williams was like, yeah, dude, hell yeah, working with Disney, working with animation? That's, that's awesome. That sounds like a dream come true. You know, being able to connect with kids and his own children and just all that stuff, he was totally on board. He was so on board, he agreed to do it for what is effectively pennies by comparison. Now, I know uh, you and I might look at, uh, I think it's $75,000, and just be kind of like, <gasps> but while Will Robin Williams was, I don't know if he's at the height of his career, but he was certainly towards the high end of his career. His asking price at this point in history was $8 million in the early 90s, by the way. Yeah, but so he took absolutely no money, basically just because he wanted to do this animated work. But again, he did have some provisos, which they ignored basically all of. <laughs> Yay. So that leads to the film. Now, the other reason I want to talk about Robin Williams, other than the fact that he does a good job of the genie, of course, is the fact that 
there are Robin Williams is not the only one to do this, but he's one of the main sources of this. He ad libbed so much of the script that the screenplay was ruled as not being qualifiable for being nominated for an award, even though it was up for you know they were it was in consideration. They were going to nominate Aladdin for best screenplay. Uh, they decided not to simply because so much of it had been ad libbed. Yes, there really is that much. Just to give you one example of this, right at the beginning, the film starts, and uh, we see the peddler who I'll talk about in just a second, and he just kind of starts riffing for a little bit. What they did was they got Robin Williams, and they had a bunch of just random objects on a table under a sheet. Like, here's what we want you to do, Williams. We're going to put it, we're going to go ahead and turn on the mic, and we want you to just improv. Reach under the sheet, pull something out, don't look at it, keep your eyes closed, and just riff. And he came up with a lot of material. In fact, the total supposed amount of time that Robin Williams recorded for all the stuff that he had lived, not just this scene, but all of it across the whole film, is supposedly upwards of 16 hours of additional footage. <laughs> Yikes. So the two big gags that got in are, of course, the ones that we saw. The, 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 the thing that makes fries and, the, and the, the Tupperware thing are the two ones that actually managed to get in. He also liked to do his own sound effects, which is pretty obvious in hindsight. Usually they have a sound effects sound crew, and this time, most half the time, he would just do it. So they were just like, okay, well, normally we do a poof sound here, but he literally just said poof, so we can't do that. Now, obviously, I, I'm not being speaking in any negative way. It's just it's interesting that this film was made in such a different way than the Disney standard. It's probably why Aladdin sticks out for so many people, because... If you remove the genie from the equation, this is an extremely typical Disney film. Oh, don't mistake me. It's good. But, well, we'll get there as we go through it. I do want to mention one thing. It was originally the intent that, yes, the peddler was the genie, the freed genie, talking about his story of him becoming freed. And so that's that was the whole thing, the framing device. This is something they used in the live-action Aladdin as well. And uh, this is something that they tr didn't really do anything. So, okay, this is a good time to mention something. See, the creators of the film have flat out confirmed that, and it wasn't a deleted scene that was originally supposed to be in the film. So, yeah, no, that's how it was supposed to be. Here's the problem. <sighs> like with many of these films, there are ancillary works. In this case, there's two uh, movies, film, feature, whatever you want to call them. And then there's a TV show. Those things were not made by the original creators and in many ways directly contradict the events of the rest of the film. And I point that out because when it comes to dissecting and analyzing, if we have divergent works with, which drastically disagree with each other, then we have to decide what we consider canon in order to decide what we can discuss. So to be, to be clear, for the sake of discussion, I'm not considering any of that as actually being relevant, okay? Just want to be 100% on that one. So the intro starts off, and what we have, despite my comments about this being a typical Disney film, the first thing we do is we break formula. We are introduced to the framing device, and then within seconds, the first thing we meet is the villain, right off the bat. It's worth noting that Jafar is often listed as one of the most memorable and general best villains in the Disney animated verse, and I can see why. Obviously, Freeman did an excellent job with the voice, but the other point is that Jafar comes across as more of a character than most of the villains do. For all of her memorability, Ursula isn't actually on camera all that much in Little Mermaid, for example. And, um... Well, Gaston is just kind of a pig who, while he serves as a nice parallel to the Beast, ultimately, most of his memorability is in how ridiculous and awful he is. Jafar has a lot of screen time, and this was the beginning of a trend, by the way. From this point until, I'd say, at least some of the more recent films that come out in the last few years, the villains are going to start getting a lot more screen time and a lot more development. So, uh, I wanted to talk about Jafar's motives, which we don't really discuss much in the film, but it was in part of the background treaties, and the actor himself mentioned this. The idea is Jafar was someone who was... He wasn't a genius, but he was certainly better than most of the kids in his group, right? He was smart. And he was shackled to to using his intellect and his, his capacity and his ambition in order to serve a fat, rotund idiot. And he's been doing that for however many years, basically all his life. 
that is his motivation right there. He is someone who has grown to despise his position and his job because he's always the number two slot. He's always second best. He is the second in charge of this entire nation, and it drives him nuts. Now, that's important because that's going to come up later. But it's also interesting in its own right because it shows a lot of insight into Jafar's character. He effectively is in a position of tremendous power and influence. He lives in a, in a lavish palace with guards who can attend to him and servants and food and wine and women and whatever the hell he wants. And yet he is constantly driven by seeking to be one step higher because... Well, because basically his pride and his position can't stand being the servitor. He Now, that's important because some people want to rule for the benefits of rule. Some people want to rule because they want to rule. Jafar is an extremely rare exception, and he wants neither to rule nor the benefits of rule. He just wants everyone to know he is the one ruling. So... We also have the nice intro, which kind of establishes some of the basic premise, and it also establishes how much higher magic this is. Be Beauty and the Beast, you could say that it was relatively high magic, but mostly that was just anthropomorphism, which, if we're being honest, isn't that unusual when it comes to cartoons in general, or Disney in specific. And Little Mermaid was actually pretty low tier, too, other than the existence of people and the fact that the sea people could talk to each other. Otherwise, there was relatively low magic involved. One of the first things that happens is magic in this film, and it helps to establish it because, well, this is probably the highest magic film that they've ever done, If you're, if you're now that I'm thinking about it. There's also when we interact with Iago for the first time, who is the put-upon sidekick. That's a big surprise! He, um, he is what Jafar was supposed to be. I think I mentioned this earlier. Iago was supposed to be, yes... As clearly, Yazim was less than worthy. And then Jafar would have been like, Oh, God, I know, it's so frustrating. And you can see why they switched this. In fact, you can see it so much, I'm not sure why they were the other way to begin with. Like, why, why would you... That doesn't work. Whatever. This, of course, then leads to a light, silly, happy song about having to steal food in a life-threatening situation just to be able to eat. Now, I know every society has its poor, and it can be argued that there's no getting away from the concept of poor, but um, is this indicative of exactly how badly run this country is under the Sultan, who is well-meaning but a moron, and Jafar, who is intelligent but evil, which is a really bad combination? Like, we know, based on later inferences, that Jafar is effectively in charge of the military. So, is this just normal? Are there plenty of people who do not have enough food or capacity to work in order to eat? Anyways, <clears throat> this is also when Abu shows up. The, uh, I don't like Abu. <laughs> no offense to Mr. Welker, but, I mean, I, I thought about keeping track of how many times in this, uh, in this movie they're this close to getting away with something, and then Abu messes it up. I stopped counting after a little while because it just kept happening. I get the idea. Abu is basically a more extreme version of Aladdin. He is a thief who is greedy and selfish, but at the same time he is not a cold-hearted snake, no pun intended. He does have the capacity to care about others, as shown when he offers his bread to the kids. Speaking of which, that is also a good way to you know, establish our main character. He's athletic and agile and adaptable and poor and willing to, despite the fact that this is probably the only food he's had all day, still give his food to the young children because they need it more than he does. That's Aladdin. Bam. Quick aside. This is going to sound so strange, but I know some of you are going to know what I'm talking about here because I've talked about this in real life to some of my friends before. How many of you see that bread and think, God, that just looks so delicious? Something about that bread, it just looks so good. Every time I watch this. So, <clears throat> Aladdin goes to interact with Prince Ahmed. This is, of course, they, they establish Prince Ahmed to try and establish some of the class discrepancy that is going on here. Because Ahmed immediately reaches out to whip children. 
I really don't feel like I need to add anything to that, but just to add to addendum to it, the reason he was going to whip them was because they accidentally stumbled in front of his path. For the crime of being in his presence, he was going to whip children. Now, this is the only other prince we see. But based on this, you can kind of get an inference of exactly why it is that Jasmine has been telling most of these guys to go to hell. Uh, this is also a good time to mention that uh, while Aladdin obviously intervenes, because he's the good guy, the fact remains that when, uh, when, the prin when Prince Ahmed decides to yell at him and insult him, the it does bother Aladdin, but the only insult that sticks with him is, I'm not worthless. That is effectively his character arc in a nutshell. His desire to be perceived as something of worth. And his belief that he is actually worthless. And his fear that he is worthless. I certainly understand that very well personally. I imagine some of you do as well. Meanwhile, uh, Jasmine starts talking to her father. Nice little bit of direction, by the way. She walks over to a cage and pulls out a little bird. And it's like, ah, as she's talking about wanting to be free from imprisonment. Then, it gets even better, her father, who is coming across as a lo you know, loving, kind, caring person, basically the exact opposite approach from Triton back in The Little Mermaid, he's like, oh, you poor thing, I, I just, I don't know what I would do with you, I want you to be, make sure you're taken care of, and he takes the bird and puts the bird back in the cage. Cute. This is also when we first see Jafar's interaction with them, his usage of hypnosis, and the fact that the art designers did a really good job with him. They actually used, uh, it's hard to explain, basically a pattern in designing every character in the film with one exception. You could probably tell just at a glance. There's a lot of ovoids, very kind of round, circular shapes when it comes to their body types. The one exception to that is Jafar, who is very angular. This is done on purpose to help differentiate him from everyone else. In addendum to that, his face is also designed differently as well. Because Jafar constantly masks so much of his emotion, it was specifically designed so it looks like he is, his face is literally a mask. It's probably worth noting that since Jafar is bald, he also tends to wear this really tall hat to help accentuate himself. Which is interesting in its own right. Because it kind of goes along with the character, doesn't it? Anywho. <clears throat> so... We also see the hypnosis for the first time, but I'm going to kind of skip over that for a moment. Jasmine sneaks out, goes, enjoys the market. Um, this is probably when the Little Mermaid parallels come in the closest. You know, rebellious young princess wants a different life than the one her father wants from her, blah, 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 all that stuff. The difference here, though, is unlike in Little Mermaid, where it was shown that the humans aren't really dangerous, in Aladdin... The, the, the outside world that her father is so worried about is immediately dangerous. And she comes within seconds of having her hand chopped off. Because that's how you deal with thieves, right? That's, uh, that's an interesting wake-up call, isn't it? Thankfully, Aladdin was there to try and adapt his way around that. And this is also our first time we see that Jasmine is not stupid. She picks up very quickly and she plays along very smoothly. This is something that's going to be a recurring part of her character right up until the finale. This, of course, leads to uh, her keeping up with Aladdin, her and Aladdin bonding. This is the first time I noticed that Aladdin wears purple, by the way. There's a big color motif in this one, which, if you're paying attention, was also in the previous one, and will be in the future ones as well. But the point is, there is a color motif here. In this case, it's very simple. Red is bad, blue is good, yellow is neutral. You'll notice there are actually a lot of yellows in most of the character designs. However, some of the more... Like, like, for example, the palace guards wear predominantly yellow. The actual soldier guards wear predominantly black with a few red highlights. And you can kind of get the idea. And, of course, Jafar himself as uh, black and red, which later turns into red and red with a little bit of black, which later turns into even more red with a little bit of black. And, of course, the genie is pure blue. But I point all this out because Aladdin wears purple. I always thought that was interesting because we know the color coordination thing is there. It's in the interviews and everything. And Aladdin wears purple. I kind of like that. Because, honestly, Aladdin, while he has a good heart, at the same time, he's not above doing bad things. 
I know that we all make fun of the, the typical romance star story of the old Disney films, but honestly, this is someone who is willing to lie, deceive, and cheat his way to try and win Fair Maiden's heart. Let me say that again. He thought the best way to get a woman he likes to like him back was to lie, cheat, and deceive to her. I'm pointing out the fact that while Aladdin is not exactly anywhere near as bad as Jafar, which... Um, he's, he's not squeaky clean, which I think is actually part of why this works a little bit. Since the whole part of this point of this movie is that he actually undergoes a character arc. He learns a lesson, in short, and becomes a better person by the end of it. Um, so this then leads to a really nice bit. Now there's three big themes running throughout this work. One of them is the theme of the truth. You know, who you really are, what you really are. You know, inside, that, that, it's a very obvious and very common theme. You know, seek ye out the diamond in the rough. They'll see that I'm worth more than just being a street rat, etc., etc. The second one is the far more obvious theme of escaping imprisonment, which is true for, I think, every main character. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jafar wants to escape his imprisonment of his servitude to the Sultan. Jasmine wants to escape her life. Aladdin wants to escape his life. Genie wants to escape his enslavement. So, yeah, that's a bit, pretty obvious one. But the third one's probably the most interesting one to me. Because uh, the third one is about knowing what you really want, as opposed to what you think you want. Now, that sounds like a dumb way to put that, and that's because I'm a moron. But the general gist of the idea is we experience and age, and thought, and skill lead us to understanding who we are and what we really want. But that usually involves one key element, time. Otherwise, we tend to just look at something and think, well, that would be amazing. Well, we don't actually know, of course, and in, for the most part, we usually can't know. There is a reason why those stories about lottery winners, you know, completely going bankrupt are so widely spread, even though they're actually the minority compared to the people who make money and actually make it work. It's because of the fact that we can look at that and be like, yep, that makes perfect sense. Because they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to handle it. Once they were there, it was like, ugh. Right? This is actually a very classic trope when it comes to wish fulfillment in general. Usually, it's portrayed as if there is some kind of malice or, if not outright malice, then some kind of mischief on behalf of the wish uh, granter. In other words, the idea that, you know, there's a monkey's paw involved, right? Something like that. But here, the theme is just played straight. You think you really want something because you don't understand it. Now, I'm bringing this up here because... There's a wonderful scene where Aladdin and Jasmine are looking at the palace. And as they're staring at it, he's just like, oh, it's so amazing, and it looks so incredible, and it's so, oh my god, it's got to be wonderful to live there. And Jasmine's just like, oh, I hate living there so much. This actually is two themes in one, if you're paying attention. One is, it looks different from the outside than it does from the inside, a.k.a. the truth of what it really is. And the other theme is, what you think you really want. Now... This then leads to them trying to escape from the guards, failing, and then uh, there's an interesting point, which I, I point out here because it's fascinating. Jafar outranks Jasmine. Now, you might say, well, duh, but actually in several real-life countries, the, you know, the second in line to the throne, not, not, the, not the vizier, the prince or princess, usually outranks the vizier. Now, that's not always true, and it depends on the specific politics, but it's made very clear twice in this film, Jafar outranks Jasmine. The only one who outranks him is the sultan. Number two, <clears throat> he's got Luigi syndrome. Let's just call it what it is. I'm looking at my notes here. We're just kind of going to run through some of these things because uh, Jafar tricks him. He's got a disguise. Things aren't always what they seem. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then they go to the cave. This is actually probably my favorite part of the main theme of <sighs> true value within, whatever you want to call the first theme, what you truly are. Because here's this cave filled to the brim with treasure. Just absolutely flooded. And you know what's the most valuable thing in that cave? A dinghy dusty old lamp at the very back. Now, I do have a couple thoughts about the cave before I move forward. Thought number one. Is the treasure fake? Given the 
somewhat morphic and high magic nature of this film in general, it is entirely within the realm of possibility that that, tre that treasure isn't real, that it's literally just cursed treasure, or cursed whatever you want to call it, and that none of it is actually valid. It's just a warning sign for anybody to, to, you know, to see that you're doing exactly what you're told to do. Just interesting to think about. And the second thing is they touch and interact with the carpet just fine without issue, which means the carpet's not part of the treasure, and arguably not part of the cave. Now, the genie and the carpet recognize each other, but based on inferences, it's actually entirely possible that what actually happened here is the carpet end up, ended up trapped here, probably from the previous master, and has just been stuck here for however long. Anyways, with that fun thought out of the way, carpet is amazing. Uh, an excellent example of R2-D2 effect. The carpet is very expressive and gets across a lot of emotion without a single bit of sound effect or a single line of dialogue. So, similar to the Little Mermaid thing, excellent characterization there. Then Abu screws everything up by going for the ruby. Thanks, Abu. You are as irritating as always. It really does frustrate me how much that happens in this film. It's probably one of my least favorite parts of the film is the fact that Abu just keeps screwing things up. However, uh, so then they do the big cave escape. This is the... So I've talked about this before. When they started using full-on CGI in these films, they, they did very, very, very brief steps in it in Little Mermaid. They did a few scenes of it in Beauty and the Beast. I actually pointed that out. Here... Or excuse me, scene. Sorry, one scene in Beauty and the Beast, the ballroom. And here they are doing scenes. There are actually multiple scenes which are done in a CGI format, usually with something painted on top, but not always. And this was them just branching out with us, the escape from the Cave of Wonders being the obvious thing. I'm just pointing it out as the technology continues to develop and they continue to get more and more comfortable with doing full 3D uh, CGI stuff. In fact, the first time that they would be doing a full CGI film would be t the year 2000 with Dinosaur. So, just a little bit of uh, perspective on how relatively soon after this film they would jump into that full board. And as I mentioned, Toy Story, which I believe was 1995, so, obviously that's Pixar, which at the time was different, but not exactly all that far down the road, right? Anywho, this is probably one of the better bits of characterization we get for Jafar. Jafar is like, give me the lamp, give me the lamp. If he had just grabbed Aladdin, pulled him up, and been like, oh, thank goodness. Okay, give me the lamp. Thank you. Good job, boy. And given him, you know, gems and gold, and then walked off. Boom. Done. He wins. And that would have been game. The first person to awaken the genie would have been Jafar, and he would have won the end. See, this is the problem with Jafar. He has been so... Again, it's, it's kind of a pride thing. He has been so put off that he can't stand waiting. That he cannot even bear the thought of having to deal with this. And, of course... He's a treacherous, evil bastard. So, of course, he's going to kill Aladdin rather than go through with him. What do you think he is? Smart? Really, if he had just paid Aladdin off, that would have been the end of his problems. But, no, whatever. Either way, he is so short-sighted that he flips out the moment he finally gets the lamp. And just, oh, God, and you can hear the exultation. As much as Jafar is, is just a despicable person, it's interesting to note that I sympathize with him very slightly. Because he has been reaching for a goal for years upon years. And multiple times in this movie, it's within his grasp, and he thinks he has it. And each time it's it's taken away, there's just that, Ooh. And each time he's right there, it's like, <gasps> I know exactly what that feels like. And so I kind of have to look at that and go, Ooh. It is his own fault, though. Because then he tries to betray Aladdin. And then Abu you know, saves Aladdin and then steals the lamp back. And then he's screwed. And the best part is the next scene Jafar is in, you can just see him just gritting his teeth like, well, that was amazing. Now the lamp is gone forever. And that's, and you notice he doesn't even think about getting the lamp back because he thinks the lamp is just gone. There was one person who could get it, and after years of searching and years of work and years of effort, it's gone. Now what? Before I move forward and talk about the genie, I just want to say one other thing about Jafar. Because... This is when Iago comes up with the idea, hey, you could marry the princess, become the new sultan, and then you could be on charge. This is also kind of indicative of Jafar's personality. That never occurred to him until now. Now, 
on the one hand, you'd be like, well, yeah, of course it hasn't occurred to him. He wants to be number one. But that's the point. He doesn't want to have, he doesn't want to go through this whole process of marriage and political manipulation. He just wants to be on top, and he wants to make sure everyone knows it. This kind of back backroom political machination thing, that's normal. Everyone does that. Everyone plays at politics and, and political marriages and trying to crawl up the ranks that way. He accepts it because it's basically his only choice at this point. But it's not, you can see why it was never his first plan. So, at 35 minutes and 40 seconds into an hour and 20 minute film, the genie finally shows up. What then happens is, I think, about 10-ish minutes of Robin Williams riffing. I don't actually have much to add to this section of the film, because it really is just Robin Williams going off. And again, lots of ad-libbing. As I mentioned before, starting... Uh... Oh God, I think it was Little Mermaid? It was either Little Mermaid... Yeah, it was Little Mermaid. Starting with Little Mermaid, they brought in the actors to do their lines before they did animation, which... You know, was I say it was new. It was returning to an old method that worked. Um, they brought in Robin, Robin Williams for a lot of these scenes, and they just had him go. And then they animated it after the fact. They had to pick and choose a lot of the references, because obviously there are a lot of references here. And some references are okay, and some references are not, because life is weird. He is, of course, you know, well done. I do like how he starts the song by, by saying, why don't you just sit here and ruminate while I illuminate? You got it, Janie. Nevertheless, they quickly establish the three rules. Now, these three rules all make perfect sense and are actually probably one of the smartest things the script does from a purely writing perspective. Rule number one, you cannot kill anyone, which means he cannot simply ask for Jafar to be killed and thereby end the threat of the villain. Rule number two, you cannot force someone to fall in love, which means he cannot force Jasmine, his big goal, to fall in love with him, which means he has to earn her heart willingly. Which also leads us then to rule three. You cannot raise someone from the dead, which means the stakes are real. Anyone who dies stays dead. All three of these rules, while they could be argued to not make a lot of sense in character, are nothing short of brilliant out of character and perfectly encapsulate the, the setup so that there is still threat and risk and there's still a goal that has to be striven for, which is important when you have infinite wishes at your disposal. It probably helps that Aladdin is very stupid. He has three wishes. And he wishes... I mean, his wishes are awful, just put bluntly. I mean, just... What? Anyways, um... It is worth noting that when they finally get out, he tricks the genie into letting him out, which the genie says he can't do anymore. Question, why? The genie is obviously capable of taking action outside of wishes. If nothing else, even ignoring the cosmetic nature of most of what he does, he does get them out of the cave, regardless of it being a formal wish. So why exactly is it that this is something that he can't do on a normal basis? Like... For example, saving his life during the time in which Jafar was threatening him, you know, when he was dragged into the water. Unfortunately, the rules are extremely vaguely explained, which is kind of come up in a minute here, because then he wishes for Genie to make him a prince. For years, I have heard people discuss this wish. I'm not even joking. I actually looked into several of the discussions myself, prior to this rumination, to get other people's thoughts on this one. And as ever, curious of your guys' thoughts on the prince wish. Because the problem is, let's look at the facts, okay? I wish you to make me a prince. So he gives him a phys physical makeover, magically speaking. So probably some kind of uh, transmutation thing, because later it turns back into his normal clothes. So transmute, new clothes, change a boo into the elephant. And then he shows up with a big parade of people who are never seen or heard from again. And then, and he can't say where he's from or anything like that. So he has no idea what he's the prince of. Then, later on in the film, Jafar undoes the clothing and the transmutation both on the clothing and on Abu. Then, at the very end of the film, everyone behaves as if Aladdin isn't really a prince. Why? <laughs> I mean, I hate to point this out, but Aladdin did not wish, make it seem like I'm a prince. Aladdin wished, make me a prince which means, per the original wish, despite the fact that Aladdin was not originally a prince, he would still qualify as a prince now, right? 
And we can discuss this back and forth. And I know what you're thinking. Laura, it's a kid's movie. Don't ever. <laughs> Utterly invalid. Now, there's a few options here when it comes to the Prince Wish. Option number one. Here's a new country that never existed before, which he is now the Prince of. Option number two. He is made retroactively a prince of another country that already exists. This is my old theory. Now, option number three. He is given the trappings of princehood so that people think he is a prince. Now, what I'm trying to say there is basically think of it as a sustained enchantment. As long as it is being sustained, he is still technically a prince. But as soon as the enchantment is dispelled, he stops actually functionally being a prince. Make sense? Now, that actually probably makes the most sense for the, for the overall narrative of the film, that third option. But I admit I kind of like the fourth theory, which I wish I thought up originally, but I did not. The fourth theory is that what he does is he gives him the trappings, the enchantment, but he doesn't actually... It's not like the enchantments make him a prince. It makes him seem like a prince so that he can reach out to and marry Jasmine and thereby become a prince. The long game, if you will. Now, ignoring the fact that I like that approach, and the genie, it, it stri he strikes me as the kind of person who would kind of go for this approach, I do have one big point of evidence for this. After the big intro thing, which I haven't even talked about yet, he's like, okay, I need to go talk to Jasmine. And the first thing, this is now the second time Genie and Aladdin have talked since the, uh, you know, make me a prince thing. It's like, make me a prince, intro, a couple little other side scenes, and then this scene. So in between there, there is no interaction between the two. And the next thing he says to him is, you need to tell her the truth. You need to be real about yourself and show who you really are to her. Now, obviously, this is this does work, and this is cor the correct motive and operation. And the genie himself even points out, you know, the flaws. Aladdin, of course, still having the self-worth issues. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm no one. If she found out, I'd be terrible. I need to be brave, strong, confident. I need to be a prince. Which, of course, the genie says, well, good, congratulations, you do look like a prince. And he says it sadly. Point being, I think the genie was pushing for him to more traditionally become a prince from the beginning. Giving him the big... Let, let me put it this way. You could say that Aladdin didn't need the genie to become prince. And you'd be wrong. Because the problem is Aladdin needs a way into the palace to get to see Jasmine. And he can't just sneak in. And there's all sorts of problems involved with him just doing this. So, the genie opens the door for him. And as a consequence, he now has access to her and to her father and to the rest of the people and can start wooing the people and wooing her in order to be... Uh, the, you can see how the genie is still critical here. The genie is still answering the wish. He's just doing it in a roundabout way. Make of that what you will. It is interesting to note, by the way, Aladdin asks the genie what he would wish for, and we find out that the genie, and I already pointed this out, wants exactly what the rest of them want. Freedom. The genie doesn't want to be, uh... Kind of makes sense to me, actually. This is also a good time to mention something that irritates me about this film. This is probably my second biggest irritant with this film. Aladdin and Jasmine have met once. Very briefly. Maybe for an hour at most. And they are in love. Right. I gave crap to Ariel and Eric. I gave crap to Belle and Beast. Uh, at least Belle and Beast take a few days to build into something. I know it's not much, but it's something. Here, these two... <gasps> she's the one for me. And of course, she's super into him. <sighs> and what's worse about this is there's this bit where he takes her on the carpet ride. So that is, if you're paying attention, the third time they've ever interacted, ever. Once in the market, once when, you know, he comes in, he's like, no, I'm, I've totally deserved her, blah, 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 and she just storms off in a huff. And then the third time they meet, ever, is when she totally falls in love with him as he takes her off on the market carpet ride, blah, 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 blah. And she's super into him. And then from then on, the two are total totes in love. <sighs> I know they're kids, but really? I wonder how many of my viewers are going to take issue with this. I'm actually quite, quite curious. Because this... 
I, I, I don't buy it for a millisecond. <laughs> you know? Let's just move on. Let's just move on. So then we have Prince Ali. Uh, uh, oh, God, I can't remember the lyrics. It's Prince Ali, da 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 Ali Ababwa. I can't remember the in-between part. Whatever, it doesn't matter. He has this big thing where he kind of charges in and just tries to woo and and be amazing. You know, he tries to be a, he tries to be a Mary Sue on his way in, so that everyone's super impressed. And what I find interesting is everyone is taken in by this, with only two exceptions. The exceptions being Jasmine, who's just like oh, whatever, because this isn't what she wants, anyways. And Jafar, who, I mean, it's pretty obvious why he doesn't get taken in by this. You'll also notice Jafar comes up with this law of having, you know, having to marry the princess. And based on something the Sultan says, I think he's just straight up lying there. You notice he then immediately goes right back to the hypnosis, and it doesn't quite work. I want to bring that up, because it becomes clear that hypnosis only really works on someone who, like, there's a will save, right? And the Sultan doesn't exactly have a strong will save. But more to the point, it seems limited. Like, the more outrageous the thing you ask the person to do, the less likely it is to happen. Which, okay, that makes sense. I'm with that. It also limits his power overall. You notice Jafar doesn't have a lot of personal power. He's got the staff and the hypnosis, and that is kind of it. Other than, you know, his machinations and his manipulations and his political power. Just interesting to think about. So then, let's see here. I mentioned Genie giving the advice, uh, Aladdin, who really doesn't want to be worthless. And, of course, Jasmine is not stupid, as has been pointed out before. She is more than capable of keeping up with Aladdin, uh, both physically and intellectually. So she catches up on this immediately. And what's funny is Aladdin is a terrible liar. I mean, he's even got to tell his feather droops each time he lies. I'm not kidding. Meanwhile, Jafar has enough personal power, excuse me, political power to assassinate a foreign prince. That's interesting. I suppose that's not that big of a deal. I mean, I've played Crusader Kings 2 as well. But think about that for a second. Like, okay, assassination plot, there we go. And of course, he has control of the military, as we've already talked about, so that's fun. I'm looking at my notes. The next thing, oh, I suppose I should mention something else. They sing A Whole New World. I'm actually not a big fan of that song. It's the first song of the musical numbers that we've heard through the three films I've gone through so far that I don't actually care for all that much. I don't really have a big reason why. It just it just doesn't work for me. It never has. Anyways, so he uses the second wish to get himself free, which is super bending the rules in every way. And I stand by my statement that I don't see why it had to be a second wish. I mean, I get narratively. Narratively, it had to be a second wish, so that way he only has one wish left. Because Jafar gets worse immediately, you know, mind-controlling the, the father into allowing him to marry the daughter. He even has this wonderful line. This is probably the first time Jafar has seemed truly evil. And it's funny because it's misogynistic. He says, ah, I see you're speechless. A wonderful trait to have in a wife, which is just... What? Anyways... Unfortunately, Aladdin does survive and, you know, shows him to be a fraud. And that means Jafar and Iago now have to bail. Congratulations, Jafar. For the second time in your life, you had a really good thing going and you completely ruined it because you had to be number one. <laughs> There's also a little bit of improv by Gottfried. Shall we take this picture? I don't know. I feel like I'm making a weird face in it. This then leads to the part where Aladdin should free the genie. Now, here's an interesting thought for you. Why doesn't he? I know what you're thinking. Well, well hang on, hang on. Lore, he'll have nothing. He'll have, he won't have the genie if he frees the genie. Yeah, that's kind of the point. But as is demonstrated in the film, the genie still has his magic, at least to some extent, after being freed. You can't tell me an extremely grateful genie wouldn't be willing to help him out here and there after being freed. I mean, ignoring the fact that that's obviously what happened in both side movies and the TV show. You're, you're trying to tell me that he's thinking the only way he'll ever have anything is if he has one wish left. And remember, that's it's ammunition style, right? He's got one shot, nothing else. And he hasn't exactly been stellar with his previous two shots, so... 
As weird as this may sound, I don't get why he doesn't free the genie immediately. I get his reasoning, but I don't get why he doesn't do it. What's even more interesting is that he rants and rages because I'm worthless. The only reason anyone thinks I'm worth anything is because of you. And we see that core character motivation again. That at his core, it's not really even about Jasmine or being free or anything. It's about the fact that he feels worthless. And all of this has just gone to prove that he is worthless. That he was wrong all along. That's why, ultimately, he begrudgingly, sadly, decides to go ahead and tell Jasmine the truth. They are right. I have to tell her that I am worthless. That I am just a common street rat. This is, of course, interrupted by Iago. And, you know, the uh, I've had some people wonder why Iago can mimic voices so well. He's a parrot. Anyways... This then leads to Jafar getting the lamp. And now, currently, the... Uh, and this is a quote I say so often, so I had to say this, because his first wish is to rule on high as Sultan! Now, he makes his first wish, okay? At the 1 hour, 11 minute, and 3 second mark. I'm mentioning that for a reason. So, he is made Sultan, and he's like, yes... Yes, at long last, I am number one. I did it. I'm the best. And then Jasmine says, we will never bow to you. And he says, oh, okay. Then I make my second wish at one hour, 12 minutes, 23 seconds. This is a common trend. Jafar, for all of his supposed intellect, makes two wishes, one of which invalidates the previous one, one minute and 20 seconds apart from each other. Think about that. Once again, Jafar is so focused on the goal that his short-sightedness pushes him to, to waste resources and to do foolish and stupid things because he is so unhinged. You'll notice that from this point on, Jafar stops wearing a mask, uh, metaphorically, obviously. And instead, he just comes across as someone who is angry, who is bitter, who is domineering, he makes puns and jokes, for God's sakes. They're not good ones, but, you know, we do have a bit of a pun storm effect going on. I bring this up because his calm, cool demeanor is revealed to have always been a mask, like the rest of his facade. And this helps to explain part of why he falls apart so far at the end, because now that he's finally got it, he doesn't have to pretend anymore. I never have to pretend again. Yeah. <laughs> he just loses it completely. And what's most amusing to me is despite the fact that he is screwing himself over, he is still terrifying. So, once again, the carpet is, is the one who saves the day. This is not the first time this has happened, and this will not be the last, because carpet is awesome. Best character in the film, am I right? Or the bestest character in the film, because honestly, I could hear an argument for both. Either way... We th so Carpet goes, and, and Aladdin comes back. Where the hell are they where it's snowing? I don't know my geography that much, but, it, I mean, are they in the Urals? I don't know. So, <clears throat> Jafar immediately goes into the most horrible abuse of power possible. And that makes sense. Again, no more masks, no more holding back, and years of having to, uh, what he perceives as enduring abject humiliation at the hands of those two people he is making suffer. You'll notice Iago is also getting his revenge in, too. This, of course, leads to Jasmine. Now, this, this is kind of a bit of a point. See, in the original film, in the original script, Jasmine was going to help Aladdin defeat Jafar. Now, you could argue she still does, but only a little bit. Not as much as was originally intended, because originally she was going to be part of the duo. Now, if this sounds familiar, I made a similar complaint back in Little Mermaid, how I felt Ariel and Eric should have combined forces to defeat Ursula. Instead, what we have here is the same problem. Jasmine basically stops being a character right after her, her uh, ruse. Now, in fairness, she does actually successfully pull Jafar's attention to her and manages to bluff her way through the situation, because she is smart and because she is adaptable. The problem is, after that, she effectively just becomes a damsel in distress for the entire rest of the film. Not great. Nevertheless, I do have to be especially amused by the list of compliments she gives Jafar. You're so tall and dark. 
and well-dressed. And I love the gaps in between your teeth. And she's just, like, she, she can just tell she's just straining, trying to come up with anything positive to say about him at all. Anyways, so for all his power, for all his influence, Jafar is ultimately rather limited and kind of pathetic, actually, as he is effectively bested at almost every turn until he decides to completely brute force the situation. Now, this is also when the pun storm comes up. This, of course, leads to, well, the problem. Because Jafar isn't actually all that smart, as I've pointed out. That's mostly a facade, a mask. I mean, he's not stupid, but he is very impulsive and very emotional. And so Aladdin pricks him in the one place that has been his flaw since the very beginning. Pride. You are still number two. You're still Luigi, Jafar. And this is his biggest flaw, because Jafar doesn't understand that Luigi's amazing. So, in his lack of understanding, he decides to once again say being number two is insufficient. Just like it was the last two times. And so he demands that he becomes number one. He demands that he gets to sit on top of the heap above everyone else, and he wishes to become a genie, without thinking it through for even a millisecond. So... That's the end of him. You'll also notice, by the way, that when he becomes a genie, he's almost entirely red, as I mentioned earlier. Now, that's effectively the film. The Sultan then changes the law because... Really, dude? <laughs> I mean, really? And, um... You know, everything is made better. The genie is freed. He's happy. You know, they get to have a happy ending. Jasmine and... and uh, Aladdin... God, I couldn't think of his name all of a sudden. Jasmine and Aladdin live happily ever after because over the like short weekend they've gotten to know each other, they are now truly in love. Whatever, kids. The end. I have to admit that analysis mode breaking this one down, the the seams do show. And I'm and, and this is this is something I've noticed a lot when it comes to some of the really great works out there when it comes to games, shows, and movies. Um for those of you not aware, I have a system review where I give something that's good a positive and something that's bad a negative. So I don't do like 5 out of 10. It's more like you have 15 positives and 10 negatives, so you have a net plus 5, right? I like that system for a lot of reasons. But here, I feel that it applies to these films because this film feels like it has more positives than the previous two, and as a consequence, or perhaps just because of how much more ambitious it is, it also has more negatives. Whereas Little Mermaid actually had relatively few negatives, but also didn't have all that many positives. So you can see how that's relevant in determining the relative quality of one thing to another. It's just, just interesting to mention here, because obviously I did still very much enjoy this film. Now the next one is usually listed as everyone's favorite of this particular era. Obviously not everyone's going to agree with that, and I am curious of your guys' thoughts on which of these 9 or 10 or whatever is your favorite. But it'll be curious to see how it handles uh, actual scrutiny and analysis, which I will tell you about next time. See you around, guys.